Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now taking up the book of Mark, starting in chapter 1. Let me give you some introductory material about the Gospel of Mark. The author is John Mark, although there's no direct evidence of that. One knows the author is John Mark. The unanimous testimony of the early church says that John Mark wrote the Gospel. Mark's Gospel is probably the preaching of preaching of Peter arranged and shaped by John Mark. We have evidence for this from early church history. For example, Papias, who wrote about AD 140, he quotes an earlier source in favor of the following facts. First, that Mark was a close associate of Peter, from whom he received the things said and done by the Lord. Papias says that, uh, that, quoting this earlier source, who said that Peter did not give Mark a sequential account, but rather Mark listened to the preaching of Peter and then wrote down what he heard and that Mark accurately the teaching. So there's a little dispute about that. Mark, of course, this is the same John Mark who lived in Jerusalem, who was with the cousin of Barnabas, who went with Paul on the first missionary journey and got in, into a dispute with him and ended up reconciling later on. Now, what's the date of the book of Mark? Here are some options according to, to my NIV study Bible in the 50s or early 60s A.D. Some people say it was later than that, right before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 using some statements by early church fathers and some of the content of the Gospel of Mark. They make these deductions. I always think these dating schemes are so iffy, I don't really pay a lot of attention to them, just the general idea. So let's just say in the 60s sometime, what about its, its place of origin? Where did Mark write the book? Probably in Rome. What's the evidence of this? Well, there's an early church tradition. There's something called the Anti-Marcionite Prologue, an early church document, said that Mark was written in the regions of Italy. Irenaeus of Lyon in France and Clement of Alexandria in Egypt, famous church fathers, they say it was Rome. Now here's some certain historical facts that support this. In history, it is probable that Peter was in Rome during the last years of his life. Of course, that's, that's church history. Some traditions, especially Catholics, say that. But here's some biblical evidence that Mark was also in Rome about the same time as Peter and closely associated with him. 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says this, Only Luke is with me. Now Paul is writing to Timothy and Paul is in prison in Rome. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, Paul tells Timothy, for he is useful to me in this ministry. And if Timothy did that, then Mark was there in Rome. 1 Peter 5.13, the church in Babylon, if we assume that Babylon is, the, is Rome, and again, that's controverted. The church in Babylon also chose, chosen sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. So that sounds like Mark is with Peter. At any rate, the traditional evidence that Mark got his apostolic knowledge from the apostle Peter is very, very strong, and I'm going to true. Now, who are the recipients of the book of Mark? probably the church at Rome, at least to the Gentile readers of the church at Rome. Now, I just finished reading the introduction to the book of Romans, by, to the book of Romans written by Douglas Moo, his famous commentary, and Moo takes the position that the church started out being Jewish, people coming back from Pentecost, but then after Claudius kicked a bunch of Jews out for starting riots, actually it's probably the, because of the disputes with the Christians, between the Jews and the Christians, but anyway, he kicked out a bunch of Jews and the church became more and more Gentile. And so by this late date, in the 50s or the 60s, we can assume that the church is mostly Gentile. Now, there's internal evidence of this, which is pretty strong. Mark is all the time explaining Jewish customs so the Gentile readers would understand. For example, in Mark 7, verses 2 through 4, 
They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. And here's the parentheses for the Gentiles. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. Now, if Mark was writing to Jews, he would not put that in there because all Jews knew that it would be a waste of time. Mark 15:42. when it was already evening because it was preparation day, parentheses, that is the day before the Sabbath, Friday. Well, all Jews would know when preparation day was, but not Gentiles, so Mark explains it to them. Also, Mark, for the benefit of his Gentile readers, he translates Aramaic words into Greek. For example, Mark 3:17. and to James the son of Zebedee and to his brother John, he, Jesus, gave the name Bornairs, that is, and here's the parentheses, that is, sons of thunder. So he translates, the, I guess that's the Aramaic, into Greek there for his Gentile readers. Mark 5:41. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Well, Talitha kum, there's no point in translate that for Jews. They would have, or at least Hebrew-speaking Jews, they would have understood that. Mark 7:11. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, parentheses, that is a gift committed to the temple, that is a gift committed to the temple, Mark is trying to explain to his Gentile readers what Corban is. Of course, all Jews would know what Corban is. Mark 7:34. then looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is be open, when Jesus was healing somebody. He used an Aramaic, Aramaic expression, Ephatha, be opened, and Mark translates that for his Gentile readers. Mark 15:22, And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. Translates it again for his Gentile readers. So there's no question, I think, that Mark is writing to Gentiles. It has been said that Mark has a special interest in persecution and martyrdom, which would have been of interest to a Roman audience, although I think that's a little bit weaker evidence because all of the Gospels than that. Now, what are some emphases of the book of Mark? Well... The cross is mentioned six times. Discipleship is mentioned three times. The teachings of Jesus are actually mentioned fewer than Jesus' teachings in the other gospel. However, teacher, teach, teaching, rabbi used 39 times in Mark. So teaching is not, might compare it to the other gospels, might be underemphasized, but he still mentions it. He mentions the messianic secret a lot. That's the fact that Jesus was telling everybody he got healed to please keep silent and don't announce that he's the Messiah because he didn't want Messiahship to be known too early because it would have started commotions and confusions and riots and suppression. We have eight examples of that in the book of Mark. The divinity of God, the, excuse me, the divinity of Jesus is mentioned nine times. The humanity of Jesus is mentioned eight times. And other people have given certain literary characteristics of Mark. For example, my NIV study Bible says the gospel is simple and unadorned. It is succinct. It is vivid and is fast moving. And you hear many, many people say that about Mark. And it is often mentioned that Mark uses the word immediately very much. I heard one somebody one time call Mark the go gospel. So let's begin with Mark 1.1. Now what I'm going to do here, since Mark gives a kind of an abbreviated version of a lot of events, a lot of events in the New Testament, I'm going to refer back to Matthew uh, which gives a lot more detail about the beginnings of the gospel. Mark starts with the baptism of John, of Jesus by John the Baptist. And so we'll be flipping back to Matthew to get the fuller detail. And I'll use Mark as a skeleton here, as a framework to proceed, to, to use. Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, gospel comes from the old English godspell, 
which means good story or good news. That's something I didn't realize. The NIV study Bible points that out. It comes from Old English. That's where we get the term gospel. Concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, of course, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a son like human beings do. So what does this expression, Son of God, mean? Well, it means equal with the Father in substance. Just like if I have a son, he shares my genetic nature. He is not identical with me, but he is of the same essence. His essence is humanity. Likewise, the Son of God, Jesus, shares the same essence with the Father. He is divinity. That doesn't mean he is identical with the Father, because that would deny the personhood of Jesus. He has the same essence. He has the same perfections. He has the same glory as God the Father. Mark, interestingly enough, starts out his gospel the same way that Paul starts out his ministry. Paul starts out in Acts 9.20 after he got after he saw Jesus on the road to, to Damascus and got miraculously converted. In Acts 9.20, Paul says immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. So that's the first phrase that was used of Jesus in Paul's ministry, Son of God. Mark does the same thing. He calls him the Son of God. Jesus usually called himself the Son of Man, which was also a messianic. But other people called him the Son of God. Mark 1, verses 2 through 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now, that messenger, none other than John the Baptist. This, these passages are quotes from Malachi and Isaiah. The first part comes from Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1 says this, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's a pretty clear prophecy. John the Baptist is the messenger. And then Isaiah 43 says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Make a highway means to make it easy to get to someplace. And John the Baptist was making it easy to get to the Messiah, Jesus. He was preparing Jesus's ministry. Now, notice that even though Mark is primarily writing to Gentiles, he still quotes Old Testament prophecy. He ground he grounds his message in fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And this is something I think is important to point out: is that Old Testament prophecy is not pointing to some way off in the future millennium. Everybody loves to do that. It's pointing to the New Testament Church of Christ. And here we have an example of now. Let's go to Mark 1.4, then we're going to jump over to Matthew for some more details. Mark 1.4 says this, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, first of all, let's take that phrase, for the forgiveness of sins. If you believed in baptism of regeneration, which I hope you don't, you could take baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to mean this, a baptism of repentance which brings about the forgiveness of sins. That is not what means. It means a baptism of repentance which points forward to the forgiveness of sins, as John Gill points out. All right, then, let's look at who this John was that Mark tells about, the messenger of the Lord. He was John the Baptist, of course, as he's called in Matthew. He was born in 7 B.C. His father was Zechariah. His mother was Elizabeth. The name John means gracious or by the grace of the Lord. His name was given to him by an angel before his conception and by his parents at birth, contrary to the wishes of his relations and neighbors. We learn about that from Luke chapter 1. He baptized in the wilderness, as Mark says, and Matthew says it's the wilderness of Judea. This is an area that stretched about 20 miles from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. There's a plateau there. Then it went slanted on down to the Jordan River and the Dead Sea as, it went, as, it, as the altitude lessened. 
And in that area is where John the Baptist preached. Now, he didn't just preach to wild beasts and tree stumps there. Judea was inhabited by towns, villages, and cities in that wilderness area. John would retire to the country parts when he finished preaching. Now, Mark tells us that John is preaching a baptism of repentance. And this is what we generally call John's baptism to distinguish it from Christian baptism, a baptism of repentance. What does repent mean? The NIV Study Bible says it means to make a radical change in one's life. Adam Clark says it means a total change in one's conduct. Now, that idea wasn't in the mind of Jews who were expecting a military Messiah. And so John the Baptist is trying to say to get out and say, yeah, the Messiah is coming, but he's not who you think he's going to be. He's going to be talking about repentance. The Greek word is metanoite, the imperative form of it there, comes from metanoio, which means metanoio, excuse me, which strictly denotes, quote, a change of mind, says Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown flesh that definition out a little bit, and they say, here and wherever the word is used in connection with salvation, primarily to that sense of sin, it refers to that sense of sin which leads the sinner to flee from the wrath to come, to look for relief only from above, and eagerly to fall in with the provided remedy. Now, I mention this is because... If you'll look in the New Testament, a lot of times you see believing in Jesus or have faith in Jesus, and that's true, but you will also see repentance associated with people getting born again. So we need to remember that. You know, you tell people to get saved, it's not like, oh, well, you know, you say, say a little formula, and then Jesus will give you some goodies, and you don't need to repent of your sins. No, you need to say, I, I, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm turning my back on that. Give me the power to do it. I can't do it on my own, but I intend to renounce my former way of sinful life. Matthew adds the point that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, which means that Jesus was about to start his kingdom. Now moving to Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed sins. Now what does it mean, the whole Judean countryside? Matthew says all the people were coming. Well, that obviously doesn't mean every single person in Judea. All doesn't always mean all. Sometimes it means a lot of or many. What drew the people to the wilderness? John's strange appearance. His dress was odd. His life was austere. His message was awful or, or awe-inspiring, I maybe should say. He might be the Messiah, people thought, and so they flocked out into the wilderness to hear him. After all, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for hundreds of years, and there was somebody acting and looking very much like a prophet out there. Moving on to Mark chapter 1, verse 6. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Why was he doing that? Well, it appears that rough garments were common to the prophets, as Adam Clark said. Here's a couple of quote, New Old Testament quotes that show that. Zechariah 13:4. Also, it will, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. A hairy robe, kind of like camel's hair garments. Second Kings 1:8. They answered him. He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins, and he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. That's how, I think that was Ahab, I can't remember who that was, but whoever it was, that king identified Elijah by the fact that he was hairy, he, and he was wearing a leather, leather girdle. So John the Baptist is deliberately wearing the, the clothes of a prophet. Now let's go to Mark 1, 7 through 8. He was preaching, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Before we turn over to Matthew to point out some details about this verse, let's point out what 
Adam Clark says about that but there, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Sounds like there's a contrast. What's the contrast? Adam Clark says this, water baptism is nothing, but as it points out and leads to the baptism of the Holy Ghost, baptism of the Spirit. So John's saying, what I'm doing is nice, but what I'm doing, my baptism in water is nothing compared to when Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. It shows how important baptism of the Spirit is. All right, now he says, I baptize you. Who's the you refer to? He's not referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came out to test him. No, he's re referring to the people who are repenting. Notice this translation, baptism with water and with the Holy Spirit. The with there, that translation favors pouring as a mode of baptism and not immersion. I baptize you with water as I pour it on your head. The actual Greek there is en, en hudati, in water, en, which sounds like our English word en, so I prefer the translation, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I baptize you in water. Now, I'm not going to get into big discussion of that. I don't think you can make a lot of theology sometimes out of Greek. Some people like to do that. But I, th I think it, he was referring to being baptized in water, not poured, but immersed. In any case, the baptism for repentance, as I said in an earlier verse in Mark, the baptism for repentance is not for the sake in order to get you repentance saved it's to point forth forward to your salvation baptism or regeneration is not true now jesus says uh john says that jesus is greater here i'm not fit to remove his sandals he's greater how is he greater he has greater power and authority he did greater and more miracles john the baptist didn't do miracles he resurrected and redeemed the human race so yes he was a good bit greater he's as great as john the baptist was john the baptist says jesus is mightier than i in matthew he says, I'm not fit to remove his sandals. Removing sandals was the typical work of a slave. So John exhibits true humility here, despite the fact that thousands were coming to hear him preach. Ooh, I wish that certain TV preachers I know that have thousands of people come to listen to how they can get rich might think about that. How humble John the Baptist was despite his popularity. He says, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. Well, that refers to the falling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost as is fulfilled in the prophet Joel 2:28, verse 29, it shall come to pass. Afterwards, I do pour out my spirit on all flesh and have prophesied and prophesied. Have your sons and your daughters, your old men do dream dreams, your young men see visions. And also on the men servants and on the maid servants in those days do I pour out my spirit, which of course sounds like being baptized in the spirit, poured out the spirit. Now, Matthew adds a little detail here, baptize you with the spirit and with fire. Oh boy, that has led to, that has engendered a lot of speculation. Could it be the cloven tongues of fire at Pentecost? Judgments coming on the Jewish nation. The fire is in opposition with the Holy Spirit, so it's the same thing as baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's to tribulations individual believers would have to go through. It's judgment day for the righteous. It's baptism of the impenitent with hell fire. It's the purging of believers in order to make them pure. I'm not glad. You can listen to my audio on Matthew chapter 3. Covering verse 11, if you're interested in that. Moving on to Matthew, Mark, chapter 1, verse 9. Verse 9 says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now, John had probably been preaching about six months before Jesus started on his ministry. He grew up in Nazareth, Nazareth and as far as we know, he spent about 30 years. He was about 30 years old. When he came down, because we know from Luke chapter 3, verse 23, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. So he comes down from his hometown in Nazareth, 
And I've been to Nazareth. Mark tells us from Nazareth. The other Gospels say Galilee, but Mark is more precise and says Nazareth. Nazareth is one dumpy place. It is, at least it is today. In fact, people back then kind of used the term Nazareth as, in a, as a form of reproach. If you're a Nazarene, you're a nobody, because it really was a dumpy town. It is today. So Jesus comes out, and he comes down from Nazareth, baptized in the Jordan River. Well, the first question that you ask is, what is the Son of Man, who has the Son of God, who has no need of repenting of anything? Why would he want to be baptized? Baptism represents purification. How can you purify Jesus, who is already perfectly pure? And John the Baptist is probably thinking the same thing when he sees Jesus coming down there to baptize. Well, the reason that John baptized in any way is to show, the reason that Jesus came in order to be baptized is to show approval of John's baptism, to show that John's baptism was from heaven, was heaven directed, directed by God. It also set an example to Jesus' followers who were also going to be baptizing people. And so he did it. Moving on to Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we read this. As soon as he, Jesus, came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. And that torn open is a detail peculiar to Mark. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. I take delight in you. So here we have Jesus being baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not come upon him to overcome sin, obviously. It came rather to equip Jesus for his work as the Messiah. As the NIV Study Bible, and I think that's a good example for Christians, we get baptized in the Holy Spirit in order to prepare for our work to spread the kingdom of God. Now, the fact that he came up out of the water leads many people to say that Jesus was immersed, not sprinkled. Here's a quote from John Gill, Baptist that he is. One would be at a loss at first sight for a reason why the evangelist should relate this circumstance. For after the ordinance was administered, why should he stay in the water? What should he do there? In other words, what's the point of mentioning that he came up out of the water? Everyone would naturally and reasonably conclude, without the mention of such a circumstance, that as soon as his baptism was over, he would immediately come up out of the water. However, we learn this from it, that since it is said that he came up out of the water, he must first have gone down into it, must have been in it, and was baptized in it, a circumstance strongly in favor of baptism by immersion, for that Christ should go down into the river more or less deep, to the ankles or up to the knees in order, that, in order that John should sprinkle water on his face or pour it on his head, as is ridiculously presented, represented in the prints, can hardly obtain any credit with persons of thought and sense. In other words, you've got to be an idiot not to believe in believer's baptism, John Gill says. However, Charles Hodge, the eminent Princeton theologian of the 19th century, says that Jesus, well, he could have been standing in the river as he was poured upon or sprinkled as Gill says that nobody of thought and sense would believe. And then he came up out of the water afterward. Well, let me just say this. The mode of the baptism is really not important. The reason that Reformed Presbyterians get so hyped up about the mode of sprinkling is because what they're really interested in is infant baptism because they believe that non-believing people can be in the visible church and that non-believing children of believing parents should be included in the visible church. Therefore, they should be baptized. And if you're going to baptize a baby by immersing him in water, he likely could drown. So we got to sprinkle. So that's why the mode becomes important to Presbyterians. But what's really important to them, the fundamental thing that's important to Reformed Presbyterians is the is who is baptism, not how they're baptized, but who is baptized, namely unbelieving infants, of which there's not one example in the scriptures I might point out. Now let's talk about the dove that descended from heaven. 
The Spirit of God descended as, I said the dove, it wasn't a dove, it was the Spirit of God who was descending as a dove. The dove was a metaphor. The metaphor could represent uh, something visible, such as a bright shining light that flittered and floated down over his head, which is what I believe it actually was, because there was a saw there. It says, he saw the Spirit of God. He, John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending on on Jesus and to see something, you have to see see something. It was like fluttered and fluttered back and forth like a dove because it was the Holy Spirit will probably, be, you would think, appear as light. The symbol is appropriate because like the Holy Spirit, a dove is innocent, chaste, pure, humble, affectionate, simple, meek, loving, harmless. It has shrinking modesty, and it is sincere. Now, why did the Holy Spirit rest on Jesus? Well, this was a sign. It remained on him to point Jesus out as the Messiah. John 1, 32, verses 34. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. That's John the Baptist, not John the author of the gospel. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptism water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So again, John explicitly makes this clear that the Holy Spirit, it was necessary for this thing to be visible so that John would know who the Messiah was. John goes on to say, John the Baptist, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Isaiah 11.2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So there's the resting on him. The New American Study Bible in Matthew 3.16 says the dove lighted on him. Resting on him is probably a better way to translate that. Now, as I mentioned this, Mark gives an interesting detail here. It says he, John the Baptist, saw, saw the, or Jesus, they're not really clear what, let's say it's Jesus. Holman Christian Study Bible says it's Jesus that saw the heavens being torn open. Torn open. Ripped open. I don't know how you see the heavens being torn open. It makes me wonder whether there was some kind of atmospheric disturbance up there to draw their attention skyward as, as before they saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. Not sure. Mark chapter 3 verse 11 says, A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Now this, of course, is a classic proof of the Trinity because we have a voice from heaven. That's the Father. We have the Holy Spirit descending. And then, of course, Jesus is standing there getting baptized. So there's the Son. So you got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all together in one scene. Now, when Jesus says here in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, that the voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son. I take delight in you. This is allusion, an allusion to Psalms 2.7 and Isaiah 42.1. Psalms 2.7 says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I behold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. All right, so there you have very clearly... A voice from heaven quoting the Old Testament scriptures. This, of course, shows that the Old Testament scriptures were very much inspired by God. We have the Messiah marked out as who he is. Jesus prepared for ministry. Now, Mark here has God the Father addressing Jesus directly. Mark 1 verse 11 says this, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. Matthew 3.17, however, says, This is my beloved son. The best way, I think, to reconcile that is the way that the commentary written by a brother Benson, I'm not familiar with Benson, but I found him on the internet, on BibleHub.org, and he says this, the Mark in Mark 1.11, when God says, from heaven says, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was first spoken to Jesus as he was praying. 
And then as the Holy Spirit fell and landed on Jesus' head and remained there, then the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in order to provide an indication to John the Baptist and the crowd who that beloved Son was. I think this makes a lot of sense, and that's I reconcile it. All right, now we go to Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now, as I said earlier, this word is characteristic of Mark, seven times in the Scriptures. We're finished already with John's baptism in just 11 verses. Mark is a short gospel. It moves quickly. So immediately means the same day, according to John Gill. Jesus finds himself at the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice the Holy Spirit drove him there. The Holy Spirit tested his son Jesus to build him up, to make him strong, to make him a conqueror. Likewise, the Holy Spirit does that to us. I remember when Jesus looked at Philip. Where are we going to feed? Where, how are you going to feed all these 5,000 people, Philip? But Jesus already knew what he was going to do. This is in the book of John. Jesus tested Philip to build his faith. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Drove is the, the verb there. Drove, pushed, impelled him to go into the wilderness, and the reason is, is to prepare him for ministry, to prepare him for his lifelong battle with Satan, and to make him strong, and to make him a conqueror of Satan. Same reason that my teacher gave me algebra test, to make me strong in algebra. Let's finish up this audio with verse 13 of Mark chapter 1. He was in the wilderness 40 days, that's just being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. Now, wild animals is detail that only Mark mentions, according to my NIV study Bible and John Gill. They point that out. This emphasizes that God kept Jesus safe in the desert, even though he was surrounded by wild animals. Application point, preaching point here is, is in the middle of your trials, when you feel like you're going under, God has set a limit to the temptation. He's going to protect you from all that could destroy you in the midst of temptation. In Jesus' day, there were a lot more wild animals in the desert than today, that, including lions. There were lions in the, those deserts back then, according to my NIV study Bible. Now, let's look at this word, tested. Jesus went to tested. Well, actually, the Holman Christian Study Bible says tempted. It could be translated tested, but they, they say tempted. The New American Standard Bible also has tempted by the the Greek can also be translated tested. Now, whether you translate it as tested or tempted, this is an interesting word. And the reason I say it's interested is because in English it's ambiguous, in Greek it's ambiguous, and I've learned in Chinese the word is absolutely ambiguous. It can either mean tested or tempted, and the words do not mean the same. To be tested means to be put under trial. To be tempted means to be seduced into evil. When you're tested, the purpose of testing is to prove that it's good. For example, you test the metal to see if it's gold. You assay the metal, you test it to see whether it's gold. Jesus tested Philip to see whether he could believe, have enough faith to feed 5,000 people. The purpose was not to destroy. The, the, the end goal was not evil. It was good. It was to build up the faith of the person being tested. But if you translate the word as tempted, that then the goal is to seduce somebody into sin so that the sin will be destroy them. And, of course, in James it says that God never tests anyone. It never tempts anyone. It, well, the word there means tempted in the sense that the devil tempts you to try to destroy you. But it doesn't not mean that he never tests you, because obviously he does. I'm going to talk about that as we go through here, about how Christians being tested. I just gave you an example from John where Philip was being tested. All right, here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, talking about that Greek word. The Greek word means simply to try or make proof of. And when described to God in his dealings with men, it means and can mean no more than this, to make proof of, to test. It can mean no more than to test. Thus, Genesis 22.1, it came to pass that God did 
tempt Abraham in the King James. Well, wouldn't it be better to translate that as test Abraham? And Gil says that means that Abraham had his faith put to a severe proof. But for the most part in Scripture, the word is used in a bad sense and means to entice, to solicit, or provoke to sin. Hence the name given to the wicked one, the tempter, in Matthew 4, verse 3. Accordingly, to be tempted here is to be understood both ways. The Spirit conducted him into the wilderness simply to have his faith tried. But as the agent in this trial was to be the wicked one, whose whole object would be to seduce him from his allegiance to God, it was a temptation in the bad sense. So Jesus was tempted in the bad sense by the devil and was tested in the good sense by his Father God. So it's kind of interesting. Just like Israel was tested in the wilderness, Jesus was tested in the wilderness. Israel was tested for 40 years. Jesus was for 40 days. You can see the parallels there. The Israelites generally fail their test. Not so Jesus. He passed his. Adam was tested. He had that probationary period in the garden where he and Eve were not supposed to eat the fruit. He failed his test, but not the new Adam. Jesus, he passed his test. Jesus' temptation helped him to identify with us as our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In other words, the devil tried to seduce Jesus into sin. And just like the devil tries to seduce us into sin. So Jesus can sympathize with the mess we have to go through when we just die to do something we know is wrong. Jesus' temptation becomes a great model for Christians who are often tempted to evil by Satan. As said, notice that the temptation immediately follows the public preparation of Jesus for ministry. He's baptized in the Spirit. He's immediately tempted. Good application here. We get baptized in the Spirit, then we are then led into ministry. Satan realized he had a problem on his hands when he saw Jesus getting baptized in the Spirit. We've got, he's now faced a with a Holy Spirit-equipped Messiah who's getting ready to destroy his kingdom. Now I'm going to bring up a million-dollar theological question. Was it possible for Jesus to have succumbed to that temptation and have fallen? This is what drives a lot of people crazy when they study theology trying to answer this question. In fact, it's driven me crazy for years. It's only within the last year I've reconciled myself to what I think is the correct answer to that. Here's the problem. If he was a man... His human nature could have consented to the temptation just like Adam did. So if people, some people say Jesus, like Adam, could have fallen and succumbed to that temptation. The NIV Study Bible says this, Jesus' temptation was real, not merely symbolic. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, quoting Hebrews 4.15. He was confronted by the tempter with a real opportunity to sin. I'm not sure what the NIV Study Bible means by that. But if they mean that Jesus could have succumbed to that sin, there's an immediate problem. What happens to his divine nature? He's got a human nature that sins, and and so God is hypostatically connected with a human nature that sins? Please. So how does God send himself to hell? Because, you know, the wages of sin is death, and so Jesus would therefore need to go to hell. How does God send himself to hell? And what happens to the redemptive plan for the human race? Folks, that's absurd. It can't be. I heard a preacher get up one time, one of these word faith hyper-Arminian-type preachers gets up and says, well, of course Jesus could see. How obvious could it be? Well, that was one more reason for me to object, reject the faith message when I heard that, because whatever you say about this controversy is not easy. Now, the other position is, is, is that it is absurd to say that God could have sinned. But then, of course, the problem is, well, then if he could not have sinned, then how is he really tempted? And how can he identify with us who can sin? Well, here's a great analogy. I got this off a Reform podcast by a bunch of millennial theologians who were pretty good actually and they took the position that no you cannot sin and they gave an example let's take 
a starving man who is in shackles and chains, and he's tempted by the smell of pizza. You bring that pizza in the room, put it right in front of him, but he can't reach it. He can just look at it, and he can smell that pizza. Well, even though he can't eat the pizza, he's still tempted by it. He still wants it real bad. I think there's your answer right there. At any rate, the combat between Jesus and the devil has begun. Genesis 3.15 says this. This is the Proto-Evangelion. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the woman's seed is Jesus, and Jesus' seed shall bruise you, devil, on your head. And when you get bruised on the head, you're finished. And you, devil, shall bruise him, Jesus, on the heel. So you're going to give him a little nip. When you crucify him, it looks like it's a terrible disaster. But actually, he's going to rise again from the dead, so you're going to bruise him on the heel. On the heel. So there's your mortal combat between Jesus and the devil, the same combat that we are now as his body participating in. Jesus overcame three temptations in that temptation, which Mark doesn't really mention in detail. These temptations in the wilderness Jesus overcame, and now he's prepared for his ministry. So now we will take up the beginning of that ministry in Mark 1, chapter 14, when Jesus goes back to Galilee and begins his ministry. I hope you enjoyed this audio.